Well, good evening and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We are very glad that you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, questions on the Bible, maybe passages of Scripture that uh, you'd like to delve deeper into. Maybe you're going through something in your life, a season, and you'd like a biblical perspective. Uh, We are here to humbly seek the Lord in His Word with you. And we're very glad that you are joining us. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. With me in the studio today is Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin, or Peter Martin, as you say in this country. <laughs> when I say your name, Peter, people think I'm saying pizza, and everybody gets hungry and confused. So yeah. I'll try and say Peter. Peter. How are you guys, how are you guys doing today? A lot to be thankful for. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Um, so you uh, can join us in multiple ways. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or a radio affiliate, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. But do send your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. And we will endeavor to get your question on our next broadcast. And consider joining us live on one of the other multiple platforms. Uh, Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So you can find us live at calvarychristianfellowship.com, also on Facebook at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. On YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel there. We have an app here at our church. So if you search in your app store for Calvary Christian Fellowship, you'll find an app that you can watch us on your mobile device. Um, And also on Roku and Apple TV on the big screen. And I'm sure you'll want to see us on the big screen and see our faces. (laughs) and see how much you need to pray for us. <laughs> but uh, if you go to the chat functions on those, um, those platforms, however you're joining us, and send your questions in, I will be monitoring those as they come in, as well as our email, and we will endeavor to get to your questions. Again, this, this hour is completely guided by your questions, and we're very grateful, Peter and Sean, that you're here. And, uh, and I want to thank you for years of dedication to the Lord's Word and just your passion for his word and the times you've spent studying that we can all benefit from. And uh, we appreciate that. I just want to encourage you in that. Thanks, Dave. So, yeah, you're welcome. So that being said, uh, Sean, would you like to pray as we enter into this time? It'd be an honor. Dad, thank you for the chance to be in your word. We ask that we would also be in your spirit to communicate your voice as well as your heart. Thank you that your people are not only gathered here, but that they're here for the reason of hearing you. Don't leave us disappointed. Allow us to not only receive from you, your truth, but also your heart so that we can go and communicate these things with those who perhaps don't know you as well as they should. Starting with us, allow us to receive you with open ears and hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 So I understand just like on uh, Tuesday, you have a tradition. Thursday, you have a tradition as well. Am I right? Yes, it (laughs) is. Rhetoric Thursday or Friday, if you're listening on Reach Radio, we're going to be discussing the fine art of communication. And what's going to be interesting about this one is not only does the error come from a suspect that, unfortunately, we're going to be hearing a lot more of when we're discussing logical fallacies, but we again want to remind you and make sure that as we're discussing these errors in communication, it's not intended for the purpose of pointing the finger at those silly atheists who think they're philosophers when they're actually, well, even and biologists, but the point being made is this. 
the goal is for us to be equipped in proper communication. So when we're discussing this, understand it's not to demean or defame the individual who made the error. He does that fine on his own. We want to equip you to avoid making the same mistake by recognizing it and understanding it as just that. Now, Peter, could you give us an overview of what was said and the type of error that was said as we begin this topic of rhetoric this week? Yeah, yeah. So on Thursdays, like you said, Sean, we're going over rhetoric, which is uh, specifically it's the art of public speaking, but uh, we're kind of refining it down to just communication in general uh, because the entirety of this show is built around equipping people to be able to express their faith to people who are skeptical about it in a way that's cohesive, in a way that can minister to them and speak to them. Uh, for as Aristotle, who is the one that literally wrote the book on rhetoric, said, it's not enough no, to know what to say. You also need to know how to say it, right? And this is something that we see throughout the scriptures where Jesus encourages his followers to have their words be grace seasoned with salt, right? It's not just enough to, to say the right thing. There is a methodology or means of expression that's, again, logically cohesive and something that is convincing, something that could actually convince someone in a real way out of their false belief system. So today we're going to be looking at false equivalency. This is an interesting one because, again, uh, the last couple we've been going over are ones that in order to make them, they have to be kind of intentional. This one is, you can make this one accidentally very easily, actually. So, so what you're trying to do in this fallacy, uh, and again, I don't believe that he is, Richard Dawkins, who wrote this particular article that we're about to pick on, I don't think he was intentionally trying to commit this fallacy, but he did, right? So this is where, in an attempt to disprove your opponent's point, you bring up something that is equivalent in order to say, like, well, you see, it doesn't work here, so therefore it doesn't work with you either. Right, so I'm going to make an analogy. I'm going to equate them to your point. I'm going to tear down the analogy and therefore tear down your point. Which that, is not necessarily a straw man. It's a misunderstanding of an illustration that's different. Exactly. So this is, by the way, that actually can be an effective way of communicating with someone. So mm -hmm. if you can find an actual comparable analogy to what someone is bringing up, and then you can show how these things are the same. So you're taking like an abstract, high-level philosophical concept, and you're using a lower-level illustration, showing how they're similar, and then showing how the easier-to-understand one is actually false. You are simultaneously disproving their argument as a whole. Right? Like Jesus using the parables to illustrate his points. The explanation is after the definition, of course. That's the fundamentals of communication. But we want to make sure that the parable actually does match the story or point we're trying to tell. Exactly. So a false equivalency is the story doesn't match. Right? <laughs> there's there's problems with it. It doesn't line up on on a lot of levels, and therefore it's not analogous. And therefore by disproving it. It is like a false man fa fallacy, I mean a straw man fallacy, where you're actually not disproving the person's point at all. So if that sounds a little too abstract for you, well, let me give you an actual example of false equivalency, courtesy of Richard Dawkins. He wrote this article a couple weeks ago, and it is about uh, it is two pro-choice people to help them argue better with pro-lifers. Now, some things that he does very well in this article is he actually does explain our position, right? So he is trying to explain to his pro-choice cohorts, hey, you're never going to convince a pro-lifer that uh, what you're doing is moral by saying that a woman has autonomy over her body because they genuinely believe that you are murdering a child. And he's like, and you can't really 
compare the freedom and autonomy of one person over the life of another person. And so he does actually a pretty good job of that, but then he gets into his error. So he quotes from a Catholic website, which is interesting. And the, the, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic article that he quotes from actually does give a very good biological grounding for why we are pro-life. So I'm just going to read the Catholic article because I think it's good. And it does sum up our point very nicely. From the time that the ovum is fertilized, a new life is begun, which is neither that of the father nor of the mother. It is rather the life of a new human being with its own growth. It would never be made human if we're not human already. To this perpetual evidence, modern genetic science brings valuable confirmation. It has demonstrated that from the first instant, the program is fixed as to what this living being will be, a man. This individual man with his characteristics, aspects already well determined, right from fertilization, is begun the adventure of a human life. So I, again, kudos to Richard Dawkins for actually finding a quote and not finding a straw man quote. He found a good quote that sums up the pro-life position. How does he attack it? Um, and so he quotes from the article, it would never be made human if we're not human already. So that's, that is, he's right. That is the major sentence within that article. Now, how is he going to defeat that? Seriously? Does that mean that an acorn is an oak tree? Does that mean that the whispering embryonic zephyr out of the Atlantic is synonymous with a hurricane that later flattens a town in Florida? Okay. So there's the false equivalency. You have something small that eventually perpetuates itself into something large. And he's saying, are they the same thing? So is an acorn synonymous with an oak tree? Is a small wind, you know, he uses a lot of fancy lingo, but it is a small English wind. translator over here. <laughs> is a small wind that eventually manifests itself inside of a hurricane or a typhoon on the other side of the world. Is Are they the same thing? Now, is that really an, a, a good equivocation to make for our argument? No, because when we're talking about a either potential life or the status of life, our argument is that could one day be a person just like I could one day be an old man. It doesn't make me, and this is what he'll go on to essentially stumble himself over, the assumption that potential life is the only thing we're arguing. The article that he himself quoted was very careful to specify it's not the potential life, it's the genetic endowment that makes that fully in its fertilized state a human being, that it's not only going to continue to develop into a man, but that it is presently everything genetically that I am as a man. That's right. So he's misconstruing stages of development for species classification. Right. So to its credit, a zephyr is in fact composed of the same nature as the hurricane mm -hmm. in that they're both wind, but our argument isn't that a zephyr is a hurricane. Right. The argument is we're talking about wind here, a human life. Right. So uh, what, what we could say to that is like, well, is an oak, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, is an acorn the same as an oak tree? No, but an oak seed, which is an acorn, is an oak in species. And if you develop that oak seed past a certain point, it becomes an oak tree. In the same way, is the embryo an adult? No, that's stages of development, right? An embryo is a particular stage of human development, but it is a human being. It is a human embryo that develops into a human child, that develops into a human uh, adolescent, that develops into a human adult, that develops into a human 
geriatric eventually <laughs> if they are lucky. Uh, so that's the idea of that's the mistake that he make a false equivalency. So um, did you have any examples from the scripture of false equivalency before we could sum up a re- a way of answering a false equivalency? Yeah. Again, we want to make sure that this Bible question and answer program has the Bible first and foremost as our standard. And in your favorite book, the book of Jeremiah, as well as in Ezekiel, there's a proverb that's going around in Israel at the time. I'll take Ezekiel in case you want to give the cross-examination. But uh, they're essentially saying that our parents have sinned, and now we're facing the consequences. They illustrate this, they equivocate it, with the idea of our parents eating sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The modern equivalent would be uh, you ate the uh, sour candy and now we're the ones with puckered lips. It's that kind of mindset. Now, apart from this uh, telepathy of taste, God's also addressing the nature of the proverb, not as, well, that's not accurate, your taste buds don't carry over. He's addressing the point of moral accountability. He says in Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, or verse 3, let's start. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, goes on and notes these examples of idolatry that was being practiced in Israel, (laughs) that they were being held accountable for at that time. He says, yeah, your parents did something, that's part of the consequences, but you're doing something, that's why you're also sharing in the consequences. The, the false equivocation was this mess, was this mistake, is assuming we're only sinning, or we're only seeing judgment, rather, because our parents sinned. And God's point is, you're sinning too, son, yeah. and you're being held accountable for it. Yeah, and so in that answer, we do get a good methodology in answering the false equivocation. So you have to call it out, you have to explain why it's not analogous, and sometimes you get a little fancy, and God kind of does it there, where you can show how... Actually, if I were to take your analogy, I could show you why you're so wrong, right? So in other words, uh, when God talks about uh, parents eating and the children's teeth being set on edge, he's like, okay, well, let's just take that seriously. Is that true, right? If your parents ate something sour, is your palate changed? Well, no. If your parents do something sinful, am I going to judge them for it? Yes. But the only reason why your teeth are going to be set on edge is if you eat something sour. And the only reason why I'm going to judge you is if you do something evil or wicked. Which is why it goes on in the rest of the chapter to give examples of these things and them realizing, oh no, I'm doing that. (laughs) That's right. And so uh, similarly, what me and you did earlier on when I said, okay, well, actually an oak seed is an acorn and an acorn is of the species of oak. So I could actually say, okay, if I'm going to use your analogy of is an acorn an oak tree, I could say, well, it's not an oak tree, but it is an oak. Right? I'm not going to take an acorn planted in the ground and get an apple tree. I'm not going to get a pear tree. I'm going to get an oak tree. Right? It, to its nature, to its species, it is of the species of oak, and it's living. Therefore, this is why you can sell seeds for money. Right? You're not selling inappropriate material. You're selling something that is living that could be planted and that could be grown into a very specific species. Right? So it has value to it. Now, what we're arguing is that human life has unique value that is above everything else. So he makes the argument of later on of like, well, you know, like 
if that's your measurement, then is it wrong to, is it more wrong to like torture a fully grown cow or a non-conscious embryo? And the idea is like, well, you're, again, you're assuming that you're actually assuming our position is your position, right? His position is that we only value human life because of personhood and personhood is evaluated through things like consciousness and capability. We're saying, no, 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 human life is inherently valuable whether or not it has these qualities, right? A coma patient is still a human being. Is it more morally <laughs> morally justified to torture a coma patient versus a, a conscious person? They're both humans. Don't torture a human being, right? There's, Especially there's if you can measure brain activity. That's the point. <laughs> exactly. And again, Richard Dawkins, to his credit, he's not a fool. Mm -hmm. He's an Oxford-educated biologist. What puts him in these positions is that he keeps pretending he's a philosopher. Right. It would be just as meaningful as if I started spending all my time talking about things I don't actually know anything about. I'm not a movie critic. I don't know the composition of the English story and the focus of narrative. I can tell when I like or don't like a movie, but if I took time in this program to explain things I actually don't know, you're all going to be able to spot it. And much like with Professor Dawkins, it's going to make us ending up look silly. So when he ends up on the philosophy chair, when he is trained in the biology chair, what ends up happening? He would then, hopefully at least, we can attribute uh, benevolence to him in this case, you were to specify as a biologist, he would understand, we're not arguing stage, we're arguing species. Is the zygote, in fact, the same species, like you're arguing with the oak, in the human genus? And that's the whole point. So when we're talking about these issues, again, just for the sake of those listening and going on to our questions, what are the things they need to keep in mind when not only recognizing but responding to these things? Yes, first of all, if you are going to use the illustration, make sure that it actually equates. <laughs> so be very careful when you're using illustrations. Make sure that it, it matters, it coheres at the point where it needs to cohere so that you're actually illustrating something to someone as opposed to just setting up a false equivalency. And be on watch, be listening when you hear certain things like this because once again, you have to prove the equivalency. So if someone gives uh, argumentation like this, you have to be very watchful of where does the analogy miss and how can I help this person see where the analogy misses and then put a, a better scenario in, in mind so that we can get to the real nut of the issue. Because once again, if you are in a, uh, we're assuming in these rhetoric classes that you are talking to someone who is arguing with you in good faith, right? They're, they're, there's a bona fide kind of, hey, we're both just trying to get to the truth. We're both just arguing. We have our points and we might be very passionate about it, but we ultimately want to know what the truth is, right? So uh, once these uh, particular types of logical fallacies come up, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're arguing with someone in bad faith, but once you call them on it, if they're unwilling to let go, that would be a good indicator that they're not willing to actually get to the truth. They just want to assert their point. So you could do it very gently. You could say, hey, this is not a very good analogy. Maybe pick another one. Maybe I can think of a better one for you, but try to help them see why it doesn't uh, equivocate. And then you can move on in the conversation to hopefully more fruitful area. All right. So thank you all for joining us in our rhetoric lesson for this week, and we'll look forward to next week. We'll be discussing more 
hopefully with even more practical opportunities to be included. But make sure that when you're doing this, again, you match the illustration, the bad illustration with the good one. You don't attribute motive, another fallacy, but you establish the fact that, well, let me just clarify why this doesn't fit in my way of thinking, and then we can hopefully both understand each other more. That's mm-hmm. the goal of communication. Yeah, and it's you said something great, Sean, that we said a lot of things that were great. But one thing you said, <laughs> one of those things that, uh, you know, these people aren't stupid. You know, we all have a reason why we're at the point we are in our life. We are the blessed ones who God has opened our eyes to the truth of who he is. And um, to have these conversations humbly and approach these people humbly. Um, and it's an opportunity to to learn, you know, answering these questions and thinking through these things. It's an opportunity for us to, to grow um, and to dig deeper into the word so thank you for sharing that guys we, we have a question that came in from craig on facebook good afternoon all good afternoon to you craig and thank you for joining us we appreciate your question um he said my question for you when jesus for, for my example walked on water did he do it in a step of faith um that he could do it or was it just something he knew he could do um as naturally as walking on dry land so i think basically the question is did Jesus, and I think you could probably generally say, did Jesus move in faith or did he just know he had these powers and he knew what he could do? Or was there an element of, of Jesus, um, you know, maybe praying to the Father and like, well, I'm going to hope for the best when I do these things. Yeah, Jesus uh, wasn't an improv artist when it came to his miracles. The reason why Jesus did specifically what he did and said what he said was because he was making certain claims about himself that only God could do. So when Jesus, for example, would calm the seas with a word, that's a reference back to the Psalms, the Old Testament, in that the Lord is the one who calms the seas with a word. So if I can put this all in like a little stacked up equation here, it says, God calms the seas with the word. Jesus calmed the seas with the word. Therefore, Jesus is God. He's doing the sort of things that God alone can do. Now, this would be a more unique situation because Peter was also, the other Peter, not this Peter, was also given the opportunity to walk on the water as well. But it was in order to demonstrate, based on his pure association with Jesus and his power, that it was by that power that was accomplished. Now, when Jesus did certain things, obviously to know the mind of our Lord is a little bit above our pay grade, but we need to recognize not only what he was doing, but why, and I think the motivation is going to be what's key. So, for example, when Jesus in John chapter 2 was told by his mother, uh, they have no wine, Jesus specified to her, woman, what have I to do with you? My time is not yet come. So there's a conscious awareness on Jesus' part of the timing of his miracles and how they were to be manifested, but also Mary knowing her son well enough to say, whatever he says to you, do it. And this would have been the first miracle of his earthly ministry. And it's also as Old Testament reference. We'll get to that later if you want to know. But the point being made is just that. Jesus had an awareness of the timing and the intention of these things. So if we can note he's aware at least of when to do the miracles and why he's doing the miracles, the question's substance is, okay, if those are covered, what's left for him to understand to either do these things unintentionally or consciously? And I think that's just a comes from a fundamental understanding of who is doing the miracles. We don't believe that Jesus was a divinely empowered human being, someone who is uniquely equipped by God like just another prophet. So, Because, for example, the prophets in the Old Testament, they weren't you know, given a full 24-7 scope of their life for the next 
some decades and then could walk in total confidence. If God gave them the opportunity to do something in the moment, it would have made itself apparent. Elijah, for example, when he called down fire at Mount Carmel, there was some good setup that God not only A, could call down fire, B, had called down fire in Israel's history, but C, also would call down fire in answer to these false prophets for the sake of Israel's salvation. So he had those things to work with informed by God's word. But we don't believe Jesus was a conduit of God's word. We believe, according to John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, he was the word itself. So the limits, as opposed to the bounds, if there are any, of Jesus's human nature as opposed to his divine nature are always going to be tricky for us. So we have to go off of what we know, not what we, what we don't. That would be what I would work with. Given that John chapters 1 through 2 notes Jesus's identity not only before but during his existence, and as he was executing miracles based on what we do know about him, he was aware of the timing and the intention of those things. These weren't just coincidental. I would say that he was fully aware of his ability to walk on water, but didn't show off with it like in the Gnostic Gospels. It was done intentionally to this audience and at this time for what reason? Because they knew the Psalms. They would be bearing testimony of that, and it would be relevant. It was the same reason why Jesus didn't put himself in places where he'd get himself killed and then say, well, I have the power to you know, lay down my life and raise it up again. There would be a specific time and a specific purpose for when that would be. That's what I think is going to be key, timing. And that was intentionally set up by Jesus, but also guided as equipped by him, or equipped, how am I supposed to phrase this? Equipped to him by the Holy Spirit and also directed to him by the will of the Father, whose character he was always in alignment with. You can read that again in the Gospel of John. Anything to add to that, Peter? That's good. All right. Yeah. There was a question the other day, which I don't think we got to, about, which I guess is related, um, about how how could Jesus and the Father have a different will, um, as Jesus prayed in Garden of Gethsemane, right? You know, but, you know, if, let this cup pass from me, mm-hmm. nevertheless your will, not mine. And I guess it's somewhat related in my mind anyway, that, you know, did you, was Jesus acting in faith or did he know his powers? How could he have a different will to the Father if they're one, there's one God as we know, you know, mm-hmm. of course the Trinity is... Yeah, we don't assume Unitarianism, that Jesus is one being, one essence, or that they can't have different wills within that one being that is God. Again, it's complicated, but we'd expect that from an infinite being. <laughs> to say well, the least. Yeah, Jesus, it's a little complicated. Yeah, Jesus actually answers this question. Yeah. Uh, so in John chapter 10, uh, he says in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Uh, And I would encourage you to compare that to also John chapter 5, where he goes on a more lengthy discourse on this kind of dynamic that he shares with the Father. So the idea is, and this is kind of a weird concept, there's something called the omnipotence paradox. So the way that works is if someone has all power, right, which is what that word means, if someone has all power, you can't have another person that also has all power because then their wills could cancel one another out. Mm. And if their wills can cancel one another out, then neither of them has all power. So the way that the Trinity works is how do you have three 
distinct persons that are all omnipotent. Well, the other persons would have to submit their wills to one person within the Trinity. Mm. This is why we believe the Father is the head, the Godhead. So Jesus specifically says that he willingly submits his will to the Father's will all the time. Doesn't mean he doesn't have a will, it just means that he always submits his will to the Father. He mm. always acts in concert with what the Father wants. If he were to act differently than the Father, then we would have the omnipotence paradox. Then we would have two renegade deities that each have all power in the universe, and therefore yeah. no one has all powerful in the universe. Yeah. Yeah, and we, there's that beautiful, maybe the only place it's found perfectly, that that relationship in the Godhead and the the you know the equality but yet the submission and just the way that works and we see that we talked about that the other day in marriage you know and the roles of male and female and in the church how we have different roles not superior and inferior but just different roles and we see and we see that as you talked about in the godhead which is a beautiful thing to remember as we relate to each other you know and yeah, um yeah and that kind of thing um mac i'm going to get to your question in a moment thank you for it um i'm going to ask this question first because i feel like your question will kind of follow on from that it was an off-air question. Apparently, uh, Greg Laurie had this article today on almost Christians. The question is, what is the real definition of a born-again Christian? And what is the minimum one has to believe in order to be saved? How to become a D-plus Christian, huh? I got a D-plus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to graduate. Yeah. Uh, no, Not I'm just kidding. Rep. I say that a little <laughs> facetiously. So I, I think what the, the question is asking is, how when do i get in to the kingdom yeah like what what do i have to do to get in which right. is a which is a very good question so um essentially what we have to do is we have to i mean this is going to be a very simple answer we have to put our faith in jesus christ right so what does that mean specifically because obviously it's not just some sort of an abstract ethereal faith like i intellectually assent to the fact that god is real and that jesus was a real person it means that I'm actually putting my trust, right, which is the word, what the word faith means. I'm putting my trust in Jesus as a person. So that means I'm trusting him in what he says about my nature, right, the fact that I am a sinner, fallen, and in need of salvation. And I'm also putting my trust in the fact that I believe that he did die in a moment in history. He did rise again. And then that death was sufficient to pay my cost, right, to pay for my sins before the Father, right? If I believe that, and I actually believe that by leaning upon that, by putting my full weight on that truth, I have a relationship with God. That is what is necessary to become saved. Now, you may not be able to articulate that as a new Christian. You may not be able to fully word that, but it has to. those elements have to be there. In other words, once those are presented to you in a more clear manner, you can't resist them. So if someone is like, man, I gave my life to Jesus the other day, and I'm like, wow, you know, like, what, what do you think about the fact that Jesus had to save you from your sins? And like, well, I'm not a sinner. I mean, I believe that Jesus died for me, but I'm not a sinner, man. Like, I, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person. I'd be like, okay, well, you didn't put your faith in Jesus. You know, like you, you did a sin. What are you trusting him for? Yeah, you're not yeah, trusting him for anything. Don't need to. Or, yeah. you know, or if they're like, well, yeah, you know, I, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm like, yeah, you know, isn't it cool that, you know, Jesus is God as well as, you know, he's the second person in the Trinity with the Father. They're like, whoa, that sounds like a weird God to me. I kind of like to think of Jesus as like a created being, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, yeah, it's a false Jesus. So so it's not that you have to fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not that you have to fully understand the doctrine of salvation or anything like that. But you do have to assent to those things with your heart 
And that means that you cannot have resistance to them once they are explicated to you. So uh, there are some people that just have a very, very basic understanding of these things where they're just like, I, I don't know. I just, I know I want God. I know that he died for me. I really believe that. And that's, that's enough. I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's enough. You know, you Romans five, it. six through eight, you trust it. That's great. And then your, your knowledge will grow from there. But mm -hmm. the, the main thing is that there's no such thing as like a, a works resume that you have to assimilate, right? That mm -hmm. you, you have to, you have to come up with, well, you know, and I've, gone to church five times and then you know I've prayed this particular prayer and then I also got baptized within the church and I've shared my faith with a couple people and now I, I feel like I'm moving into the saved zone uh, no it's it's just you know you put your faith in Jesus and that is what saves you that saving faith will grow and accumulate through works right it will manifest itself through behavioral behavioral change and mind change right meaning you'll change your mind about particular things but it's that initial ascent of faith, that initial grasping onto the cross. That's what saves you. Yeah, it's not a series or sequences of brainwashing to make sure that you're in our proper club. It's the affirmation of truth statements that center around the actual Jesus of history. Now, obviously, if you don't have your Bible memorized, then that doesn't disqualify you, as Peter was saying. But it's also key to note the big, big difference, as you stated, between resisting doctrine and questioning doctrine. Questions think there are answers. Doubts think there are none. And there is a difference between that because one is an assumption of a conclusion, the other is the pursuit of one. We encourage that, which we'll go into Max's question in a moment. But again, just to recap, Romans 5, 6 through 8, and I know Greg Laurie, he's evangelist par excellence in our day. He knows and makes sure in every single gospel presentation, this is what you're doing. I'm not doing this to you know meet my quota or numbers. I would rather you guys be informed than be in my church. <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. the whole point that's being made. And he makes this point based on these principles. Romans, again, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, that if you believe, uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, literally referencing the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and believe in your heart that he has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a no wiggle room statement as far as these, uh, Romans uh, 10, 9 through 10, excuse me. Uh, and then, by the way, quoting Joel chapter 2, fun fact and trivia for you. But when it comes to the way at which we know we're saved, it stands and falls on whether there is a God and he's proved it, and how you have a relationship with that God since he's proved he also wants it. He's personally invested himself in making that possible. The Father sent the Son, the Son gave his life, and the Spirit also indwells us. That's what makes the Son's sacrifice uh, efficable. Uh, we're using fancy English words yeah, here today. So very nice. that's the whole point. When we're put in a position where we're asking, okay, what now? that's the Christian life. If on the other hand, you'd say, no, no farther, I'm comfortable here, the author of Hebrews is addressing audiences that are kind of in that ballpark. But this is what we're talking about. As far as what it takes to be saved, when you're wondering, am I really saved and you need something to fall back on, can you point to a time in your life where you have taken Jesus up on his offer, that you have affirmed who he is, and how he proved it through his death and resurrection. It stops and ends there. And uh, Dave, to give you uh, equal clout, I guess, in the broadcast, if there's someone listening who hasn't done that, mm. uh, what would be your invitation or summary, Greg Laurie style, for them? Well, you guys want to pray right now in case there's someone that's listening? It's funny we're talking about this because today I was literally thinking, you know, we need to always make sure we kind of talk about the gospel because we can get 
deep into these rhetoric and things like that, which is great. But also, you know, we want people to know the Lord. Yeah, salvation's coming up. We're not going to miss an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's from my heart, should we pray? And if there's anyone that's, that's, that's watching and joining us, if you haven't received the Lord as your Savior, maybe you join us in this prayer. I'll pray. You know, there's a prayer, a very simple prayer that I pray with people. If that, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity. I've had people that I've kind of walked a long time. I've had people that I've kind of met them when they were ripe. And <laughs> I was just pray that prayer, which is the good part. But um, should we pray right now? Yeah, and again, not to put you on the spot, uh, for those listening and don't yet know Jesus, I don't know if they know what prayer means either. What are you doing when you say, can I lead you in a prayer? Well, simply talking to God because he is with us. I mean, a prayer is... is the assumption that he's listening and that he wants to hear this from you first. And yeah. what are those things? As far as... The prayer you're going to lead us in. What well, are the things he wants to do? It. Let's just do it. Let's just pray. If no, you I'll want Jesus <laughs> as your Lord and Savior, understand what we're going to be doing is going to lead you in something that you yourself are going to be communicating in your heart to God. It can be audible. It can be in your mind. But the point being made is that it's sincere. That as Dave is speaking these words, and again, don't just repeat after me for its own sake, like mm -hmm. those words save you, but think through what he's saying. Would you affirm that as true? Because it's literally the difference between life and eternal death. Yeah, absolutely. So. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this time right here in around the middle of the show here, Lord. We thank you for the technology. We thank you for um, just the ability to do this, Lord. And, and again, as we have said, we want to remember this is about you, your glory, Lord, and ultimately, I think right here in this world, it's about salvation. Lord, you you are not slow, your word says, in fulfilling your promise of returning, but you wait patiently, wishing that none would perish, Lord. And um, so we want to be all about that. We want to bring everything back to that knowledge that you are bringing people to know you, Lord. And I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice, wherever it is around the world, um, however they're tuning in, Lord. Um, Lord, I know that you you are about that work of drawing people to yourself, Lord. And so I pray that if there is uh, people who have not made that decision for you, Lord, I pray that they would pray with me and in their hearts and their minds repeat this prayer after me, Lord. Um, Lord, you lay this out in your scripture. This isn't something that we make up. These are things, uh, uh, scriptural, um, biblical principles of salvation as we've talked about, Lord. And so we want to pray this together, uh, Lord. We recognize that we are we are sinners, Lord, meaning we miss the mark. We've fallen short of the holiness, Lord, that you are. We recognize that we cannot in our own power um, be good enough, holy enough, Lord, to be accepted by you. You are a holy and just God, and all have fallen short, Lord, of that standard. Lord, we believe that Jesus, your son, came into this world to take the place for us to pay the penalty that we couldn't afford. Lord, uh, we, we, we couldn't even afford the, 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 uh, the price for our sins. Lord, you came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ to die in that place. And in that moment, you said to the Father, blame me, pour your wrath on me, and I will take the punishment. I will take that blame so that we could be forgiven. Lord, we believe that and we accept that. We ask that you would come into our life and into our, into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray that with this just simple confession and, and prayer that from here you would walk us forward as we have talked about, that we would grow in the knowledge of who you are, Lord. But we know that you have given us that, that provision and opportunity that you did everything that was necessary on the cross to save us, Lord, that we can know you, that your, your spirit could indwell us and, and open our eyes uh, to the truth of your word and to see 
everything differently, Lord, through you. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We, we, we can only thank you. We couldn't do it ourselves. We thank you for that gift. We receive it now for the first time. We receive it afresh today, and we give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. And again, for those of you who want to do some follow-up homework on this, the passages that Dave was speaking about as far as this is being from your word, from your revelation to us, not our speculation, but his revelation, look up 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the how. We, of course, know the what, that the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, this is the gospel in which you are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and then lists the 500 documented eyewitnesses, especially the ones that were writing about it in the biographies. We know it's the gospels. This is based on history and fact, not fiction and fanciful tales, as again the Apostle Peter said, not cunningly devised fables. You can look up the means by which we're saved through confession to say the same thing in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, noting if we confess, literally say the same thing about our sins, we, uh, he is faithful and just, meaning trustworthy and fair in doing so, to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. But if you say we have not sinned, you make him a liar and his word is not in us. The point, and then you can continue on to the first verse of chapter two where it builds in this point as well. All these things on the basis of prayer are based on the assumption that God wants you in his kingdom and understand I'm sure we're all in agreement here. He does. <laughs> Salvation was his idea and with you in mind, if you were the only person that he died for, he would have gone to that cross. But the point being made is this. If you come to God on his terms, it's true for every relationship, including the most important one. If you want to know more about how to grow in your relationship with God, note that that is, of course, something that we're here to do as well. But understand that on the basis of your confession, admitting A, you're a sinner, B, you need a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior, and that you want to live for him from this time forward in your life, regardless of phrasing, regardless of accent, it's all founded in his simple promise. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Mm. And then uh, you can look up Romans 5, 6 through 8 that I was referencing mistakenly, but still relevantly. The point being made is that though. Thank you all for praying with us. Yeah. Awesome opportunity. You can Google the Romans road, right? There's there's verses that you can jump around in Romans, which basically walk you through um, salvation. And it's really important to remember that God, I mean, forgive the words, but God made it very easy for us to come to him because he, he had to. You know, we, we, um, it's important to remember that we were dead. You know, it wasn't that we wasn't quite good enough or that, well, we could get it, we could get there ourselves, but we just haven't yet, so let's help him out. Like we were dead, we were enemies of God, dead in our sin. Ephesians 2, Completely 1. hopeless, helpless, no chance. You know, there's People that say, you Christians think you're so good. You Christians think, you know, I grew up with that. You think, you, you know, no, we, we think we're going to hell. We think we're bad. You know, that's, that's the premise of our salvation. We believe that without salvation, we are destined for hell, literally. That's what we believe you have to. Like, you know, like you said, Peter, as you was talking about it, if you're like, well, you know, I believe in God, but I don't really need, well, then you don't, you haven't got it, you know. And so it helps me to remember, man, God, God knew our frailty. He knew our weakness. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when, even when we had turned, it was when we were still lost in all that. That's when he died for us. And that, that helps me to, you know, have peace that he has, he has done that work. So getting to Mac's question, and, and Mac, I wanted to mention 
I think it was on Tuesday, I believe. I believe it was last time we were together. We said we'd pray for you, and we did. We came off air and prayed for you because your question, um, you know, just we could kind of sense your your struggle and pain, I, I believe, and we, we did pray for you as promised. And thank you for your question today, uh, which is kind of coming on from what we've talked about. <laughs> is it strange to question if you're saved or not? No, in uh, fact, it's commanded in Scripture. This is Second Corinthians 13, and let me start in verse 4. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, so we are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you know or that you will know and that we are not disqualified. So I wanted to include in verse 4 because he essentially sets up the qualification that A, not only Christ Jesus is in you, but how did he get there in, in a spiritual sense, that he was crucified and now lives by the power of God. If you can point to a time in your life where you've confessed that from the heart, by all means. And if you're anything like me where you're just like, well, I doubt my sincerity. How do I know that the you know, I'm just justifying myself as some bout of pride from the enemy. Okay, say it again. We'll drive the enemy crazy. But note that is the foundation of our salvation and that the Holy Spirit's the only reason we go anywhere from there. And that's another important thing where you, know, you guys were emphasizing when we were praying the prayer that there is no, like, magic way of getting saved. So I, I think that when people struggle with their salvation, they're kind of the normal psychological doubts that we have because I feel like all people that aren't narcissists struggle with some sort of insecurity of, you know, who am I? Do I really belong? Uh, do I really belong in the relationships that I have, whether they be familial, uh, romantic, or even their relationship with God? I think that's like a, a natural instinct of the human. But um, when people really start to struggle, when those struggles go beyond just those moments of insecurity and they actually go into real psychological pain of, I don't know, I really don't know if I'm saved, um, it usually comes back to you have some sort of a idea of what salvation would look like. And you got to remember that from our perspective, it's just that belief. So if you're like, well, I don't know if I said it right or I don't know if the words, do you believe right now in what Jesus said? So like one of my favorite passages that illustrates this is 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11, where John says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So remember, what he's saying is it's not like you said a very particular thing or you quoted some sort of a theologian or you've read your entire Bible or you've done this or you've done that. It's how do you know for an absolute certainty that you're saved, that you believe in the Son of God? So you can test yourself on that anytime you want. Do you believe in the Son of God? And remember, Belief does not mean you do not have doubts. Belief and doubts can coexist, and they often do. The whole point of faith is learning how to tell your doubts where to get off, right? Learning how to tell your emotions, I feel this way, but that doesn't change or compromise what I believe, right? I believe this, and that's what's going to carry me through. Mm. Yeah, because I think of the verse, I think you mentioned this before, of, you know, when you pray, do so without doubting, because, you know, man, your doubts blow by every wind, you, you, you won't be heard. So say, explain that again, the, different, the difference between, you know, what is, what's a healthy, what is a healthy doubt? 
Because yeah. there are scriptures oh, that say if you doubt, then question God. as opposed to doubt. What's that? Question as opposed to doubt. Question as opposed to a healthy doubt. doubt isn't a doubt. It's a question. It's question. looking for an answer, not believing there are none. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, uh, you're you're actually referencing a very specific passage in scripture. So you're referencing James chapter one. So yeah. in, in James, when he talks about asking without doubt, uh, let me just read the passage, and it will become pretty clear. Times of trials, right? In James, the context. Right. So in the beginning of James, he is just talking about going through various trials. But you got to remember, James is actually the New Testament book of Proverbs, right? So James is very practical wisdom, man. This is, as Robert Furrow would call it, practical Christian living, right? That's what the book of James is. Uh, so it's actually not very theologically heady. It's not intended to help people understand salvation in uh, a really broad sense. It is really all about how do I live out the Christian life? in a very practical sense. So the beginning of James deals all with suffering, trial, and uh, struggles against temptations within our flesh. But in verse 5, he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let no man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a, and this is a clear clear uh, passage. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Mm. So when I'm using the word doubting, I'm using it in the context of like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, where he was really struggling with his mission and role. Now we know that he, what he believed, he believed that he needed to go to the cross, but why would he word it as, if it is all possible, let this cup pass for me, right? Why is Jesus even questioning that? Well, he's, he's not, not on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, he's struggling to trust that. He's struggling to hold on to that because of the turmoil that he was going through. We also see this in the Psalms, right? Psalm chapter 42, the psalmist literally says, I will say, my God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Right? So he feels forsaken by God. And yet in the same Psalm, he talks about God being an ever-present hope for him. So you have this thing where it seems like, well, isn't that a double-minded man? Well, it can't be. Because James is clearly saying that this person is not receiving anything from God. We have to understand it in a way that doesn't contradict the rest of the Bible. So the most clear way to understand it would be this is a person who is asking, but he's uncertain, right? He's completely uncertain about whether or not God is even listening or even cares. So it's someone saying like, God, give me wisdom. Right. But deep down, they feel like I'm just talking to the wall. You know, like I'm not actually God's not listening. He doesn't really care. Right. I'm, right. I'm not actually believing. No answers. Right. That there's that there's no um, that God is really listening. There is no faith. That's what yeah. he's saying. So that that double minded kind of person is someone who literally to be of two minds means that you're believing two contradictory things at different times, right? You're kind of cycling back and forth between, hey, I believe this. No, I don't believe it anymore. You know, like that kind of instability is really bad, and that is an absence of faith. Yeah, right. thank you. Thank um, you so much. Question on our website from Preston. I don't know if you're referencing the slogan that, uh, you know, it's the woman's body, therefore it's the woman's choice. Uh, he asks, does a man have authority over his own body regarding women and abortion? What about the man? Uh, this is usually in counter to the idea that it takes two to tango, that if a child came into the world, that, of course, the father should have a say in how his child is being dealt with, too. But we're doing the Bible q and I'll handle the scripture, then we'll deal with the bad logic of the slogan. First uh, Corinthians 7, where it notes in verse 4 that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. This is then what 
what's left out. But the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The topic and discussion of all of this, again, if you're not ready for books written for adults, don't read them, is set for us in verse 2. Uh, it's discussing, at the end of verse 1 technically, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, is this referring to physical touch or is this in a more intimate sense? Well, notice what Paul notes is a contrary point. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, the immoral use of our sexuality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And then it notes that the husband is to render to the wife the affection due her and vice versa. Then we get into that point. For, because of this, a man does not have authority over his own body but the wife, likewise the wife not authority over her own body but the husband. The entire conversation started not with the birth of the baby, but with the process at which that makes the baby, if you follow my line of thinking here. Now, he goes on to note that, again, there is a better option in ministry that you would just be single, but, hey, human beings here. So the point being made is this. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a different calling. When it comes to sexual ethics, though, understand that to discuss the logic that uh, Paul's employing in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 4 is not talking about when the baby's conceived, it's before that but also on the way to that. That then being said, when someone brings up the slogan of it's the woman's body, therefore it's the woman's choice, what are some counterpoints to that biblically? Yeah, I think you are right to bring up the 1 Corinthians 7 passage um, or allude to it in some uh, ethereal way because it does point out the flaw in that line of thinking. So when Paul talks about a wife not having authority over her own body but the husband, what he's actually talking about is responsibility. Right, so when I make vows to my wife, I have a responsibility to her. I am no longer autonomous to do just whatever I want. Now, um, what the Bible also insinuates in many other places is that, and again, pretty much every culture would agree with this, that once you conceive a child, you have responsibilities to that child. Now, our culture would just disagree about when those responsibilities start. Uh, they would say, well, they start or begin once you birth that child. But you wouldn't say that a parent could just like, hey, you know, I, I, you know, my daughter's two years old. I'm kind of sick of watching her. I'm just going to like leave her at a park and abandon her. Most people would say that that's wrong to do, right? That's an inappropriate thing to do. Why? My body, my choice, right? I, I have my body. I'm going to take it somewhere else and leave her. She's got her body. Leave her over there. What am I doing wrong? Well, what you're doing wrong is that it's not your body, right? Your body now has responsibilities to your child that you are expected to fulfill. And if you're not willing to fulfill those things, it's your responsibility to find someone who will fulfill those responsibilities to your child. But even then, most people would say that that's, even that's bad because the child has a right to be raised appropriately by her, their biological parents, right? That's something that they have a right to. It's not correct. It's not good for a child to be deprived of that. Even children who were adopted into very loving homes like my mom, uh, they get a test, it's like there's still a damage that's done by being left by your parents. No matter how good their reasoning might have been, you're still left kind of holding the baggage of their decisions. So um, yeah, that, that is the way that we understand it, that my body is not my own. We have this hyper-individualistic culture that suggests that we have no responsibilities outside of taking care of ourselves. That is very against the Bible. The Bible describes a life that is lived in service to others, where I don't see that my body has autonomy to do whatever I want, but I have a responsibility not only to God, 
but also to my fellow man to love them, right? To, to care for them and to care for their needs. And that is what we believe about the parent, that you have a responsibility to your child to nurture them in the womb, to take care of them. That is a separate human life and your body is not your own. So uh, some people I think argue this badly where they're like, well, you know, like it's just the, the, the child's in your body, so you have to watch them and that it changes. Well, no, like we just have responsibilities to one another. You know, if someone showed up at your door today and they were literally dying of dehydration, would you be like, hey, man, you know, not my problem. You know, I'm, I'm just going to let you go. You know, I, I'm doing my life. Why should I have to sacrifice of my water for you and your mistakes? No, you would understand. I have a responsibility to my fellow man. Mm-hmm. That's why all laws have what's called a good Samaritan law written into them, that you have a responsibility to take care of your fellow man if there is a need that is presented to you and you can fix it. So. Um, I think that's an important thing that our culture has lost, unfortunately. Mm. Absolutely. Sean, anything to add? No, I started, so why don't you finish? We got about 45 <laughs> seconds. I yeah, think. we do. Well, great hour. Thank you so much, everyone, for your questions and for joining us. I think we actually got to everything that came in. We really appreciate your questions because, as we've said, that's what moves the show along. Um, so thank you. We'll be back again. What's today? Thursday, tomorrow, yep. Friday, 5 to 6. The uh, same same places, different faces. That's my catchphrase. <laughs> <Bam. laughs> <to use. laughs> uh, one common face, maybe with less hair. We'll see. Well, yeah, well, two, two, me and you, Sean, uh, keeping, keeping it strong over here. But, but God bless you guys. Again, you can find us on, if, if you listen to us on the radio, consider joining us on uh, our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or calvarychristianfellowship.com um, or on Facebook or YouTube, um, you know, when you're not on your drive time. And you can send us in your questions. Questions for hope at gmail.com. Questions for hope. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.